2: HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Welcome to this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro and I will be serving as your tour guide as we explore the cultures and flavors of the American Midwest. I thought it would only be appropriate to start our journey by visiting with those whose communities truly planted the seeds of the region's harvest, our indigenous neighbors. There is no way to tell the story of any cuisine in North America without the voices of Native peoples. And I can't think of anyone better to help tell this story than Sean Sherman, a.k.a. the Sioux Chef. Sean was born in South Dakota and is part of the Oglaga Lakota tribe. Now based in Minnesota, Sean has dedicated his work to tracing the lineage of Indigenous foodways and bringing these Indigenous flavors to a wider audience. So, Sean... We are fired up and ready to go, and really excited to have you on the show.
3: Thank you guys so much for having me.
2: Absolutely. You have an incredible story, uh, and I want you to tell the audience a little bit about your background and, and roots to put your journey into context.
3: Sure. Um, so, I was born and raised on Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. i a member of the Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe. Um, all my family was from the reservation, and uh, my mom moved my sister and I off the reservation when I was just before high school age, and I started working in restaurants at a pretty young age. Um, I started working when I was barely 13. And I worked through all my high school and college career. And then um, after college, I moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota. And within a few short years, I worked my way up into an executive chef position in the city Um, and never really turned back. So I've been a chef for quite a long time now. And a few years into that chef career, I had this epiphany of doing what I'm doing today, which is really a focus on North American indigenous foods. And a lot of that was a realization of uh, just seeing that there was almost no Um, indigenous uh, uh, anything in the culinary world around the United States or anywhere. So um, I really wanted to get to the bottom of what that meant to me and uh, my ancestors.
2: So, I I mean, you're absolutely correct. And I think that anyone would agree that there is, you know, uh, that the indigenous foodways is woefully absent from uh, the culinary discussion anywhere um, and is really absent from Plates, um, you know, whether they're in your kitchen or you know in a restaurant, um, which is why I find uh, this so important to talk about as we, uh, you know, really delve into what Midwestern foodways are, because there is such a history and heritage um, that is connected with uh, the indigenous foodways, and I know that in part of your work. Um, you have done a lot in tracing the migration of seeds, so you 're literally going back to you know the the uh, the actual um, heart of how these things you know how seeds um, basically migrated across uh, North America or maybe came from a different place and and how all of this connects together um, I, I would really, you got to tell us about uh, how you got into tracing the migration of seeds and and what that means to the larger picture of, um, you know, telling the story of indigenous foodways.
3: Yeah. I mean, I was always interested in history in general and food history for that matter, especially being in the chef uh, field. And when I started studying indigenous foods, you know, I really wanted to know what were my ancestors eating? uh, What were they harvesting? Were they growing things? Who were they trading with? How were they storing foods? And all those kinds of questions. And agriculture is such an amazing piece of North American history because it dates so far back, you know, and we look at North American indigenous food waste, um, where our focus is North America, like I said, so it's, we look at Mexico all the way through Alaska and all of this amazing history. So you look at corn production and it starts um, way in the Southern edges of Mexico and shoots both directions into the Americas, you know, both North and South. So it crawls all the way up throughout all of Mexico, through the entire... Caribbean, through the entire eastern seaboard, up the Mississippi and Missouri river valleys, so far up into uh, areas like where I'm at in Minnesota and even further north than me in some areas, and basically everywhere from here to the east coast, you know, and there's so much cool um, seeds that are still alive out there. So we see all this wonderful, diverse um, collection of corns and beans and squash and sunflower seeds and amaranth and chili peppers further in the south, and there's just so much cool stuff to see and like um, again like we're, we're lucky that we have so much of this diversity still alive today of these heirloom strains you know and but it's something that's really important because we've also lost a lot of seeds over the mm-hmm. you know past uh time period and we're just uh we're doing everything we can to showcase how valuable those seeds are
2: so you you just said showcase how valuable they are how do you showcase the uh these seeds um and and integrate them into the dishes that you make.
3: Well, there's been a lot of effort um, in Indian country across the U.S. and Canada and Um, people are really working hard towards um, indigenous food sovereignty and seed sovereignty is a big part of that. So getting some of these seeds that date so far back and they have direct links to very specific regions and people and cultures um, and being able to see these um, seeds growing in those regions um, and uh, people being able to disperse them. And for us in the restaurant and food industry, you know, we're able to work directly with a lot of these indigenous farmers Mm -hmm. and be able to showcase and create even new recipes using some of these amazing pieces um, but it's a constant study and the history of these foods and what we can do with them and how we can um, utilize them today
2: well I want to ask you about some of the new recipes um, that you' work that you know you're working on to to again showcase some of these uh, ingredients but before that uh, I do want to make sure that um, our listeners, Uh, understand what food sovereignty is. Uh, It might not be a terminology that everybody is aware of. Um, So could you elaborate on what food sovereignty uh, means to you and and what it usually means in, in this kind of context?
3: Yeah, I mean, food sovereignty really is, um, especially with indigenous communities, tied to food security. Mm -hmm. And it's looking at how indigenous peoples lost so much food security, um, especially during the 1800s and 1900s, and being removed from their own foodways. So it's all about um, these indigenous communities having the ability to um, kind of manage their foods for themselves and to really um, grow their production of the foods so they could really be secure, you know, because they need to have access to the food they need to be able to produce them. They need to be able to mandate their own rules around them. Um, and we just want to see that happening more and more because these are really healthy foods and they have very special connections to indigenous peoples. And we just really want to help um, create a better situation than, there, than what's out there today, especially along, among indigenous communities where they suffer from so much food insecurity. And we mm-hmm. see um, you know, really horrible rates of diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and all of this um, uh, disease that's happening directly from malnutrition and uh, poor food access.
2: Right. I, I mean, it, there's no question that um, food sovereignty can, can be part of the puzzle of solving some of those, uh, you know, uh, terrible epidemics that you see amongst indigenous people in North America. Um, I, I know that, you know, in your work, you, also, you do a lot to support native farmers growers and, and food entrepreneurs. Um, tell me a little bit more about that work since we're now on this topic.
3: Yeah, of course. Um, so as a, f- a food producer here in the city, you know, and um, we're focused on indigenous foods and regional indigenous foods on top of that. So when we started our work um, way back in 2014, officially being out there in the market, we started utilizing um, and focusing on using only indigenous foods. So we cut out colonial ingredients of things that didn't exist here before. Like things what? Like- like wheat flour, like dairy, like processed cane sugar, even beef, pork, and chicken, because all those pieces haven't been in these lands for that long, and we wanted to showcase all of this different food. So it was a huge study of wild foods and the agriculture, like we talked about, but also wild game and birds and fish. Um, and there's just so much to explore out there, you know, so we're just we think it's really exciting for people to to learn what's literally growing right outside their back door
2: and you. You've put together a non-profit organization kind of to that end to try to educate the public on indigenous foodways, right? Yeah. Um, and give them a more of a, an insight to some of these things that you've been studying.
3: Absolutely, because we really believe in indigenous education and creating a space for that. So um, our for-profit business was the sous chef, you know, where we had a food truck called Tatanka Truck, and we've had a catering operation um, for the past uh, f- uh, few years, which we just uh, sold a couple summers ago. Um, and we've been uh, traveling around the United States and Canada and Mexico and doing lots of uh, dinners and speaking engagements and conferences. But um, what we're really focused on is that nonprofit, which is called Natives, and it's an acronym for North American traditional indigenous food systems. And this year we're opening up um, our first unit called indigenous food lab, which is going to start here in Minneapolis. And we were hoping to be open by now, but the COVID crisis hit us really hard and we had to, you know, put it on pause for a little bit, but we're still um, locked and loaded and we're going to be opening indigenous food lab this year. And it's going to be a center where people will be able to come and try a food in a restaurant setting, but also more importantly, there's going to be a kitchen classroom for people to take classes on indigenous food system, uh, education and curriculum. So we're developing um, curriculum around uh, seed saving and farming styles and wild food and ethnobotany and culinary techniques and food preservation and even other things like um, crafting and medicinals and language. Wow. And, um, you know, all of it. We just want to create a center spo- space for indigenous focused education.
2: Well, I'll tell you if I, I hopefully I'll get a chance to, to make it out to the twin cities and um, check this out because I really think that it would be an incredible experience, um, and I think it's great that you know you're you're not only being able to um, support uh, you know in other indigenous um, you know farmers and producers and 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 whatnot but being able to uh, educate the larger public on something that, you know, they may n- not know anything about and introduce them to, you know, these, these agricultural aspects, as well as these different ingredients um, that, you know, maybe they've never come into contact with. You mentioned earlier, and and I want to circle back to this about the uh, recipes and some of these different kind of ingredients. You talked about, you know, sort of the uh, foraging and, and wild ingredients and game meats. Um, Give us some examples of uh, a dish that you might put together with some of these unique ingredients that you found um, have history and roots in in these North American and regional indigenous foodways.
3: Well, it's really exciting to think about how much diversity there is out there, number one, because, you know, there's still 573 tribes in the U.S., um, 622 in Canada, and 20% of Mexico identifies as indigenous. So there's a lot of indigenous groups. And every few hundred miles, you're moving into a whole new different area. You know, it's a different language, different flavors, different religions, different everything. So what we do, we've been traveling around the United States a lot and exploring all these different flavors, and we just really try to make food taste like where we are.
2: Well, and you're in the Midwest, and that's that's what the show's about. So I definitely want to hear Absolutely. about those flavors.
3: Yeah, so when we um, are making foods here, we're using things like uh, wild rice, walleye, rose hips, um, blueberries, mm. um, wild. Uh, tubers like hopness um, or sunchoke, and you can literally just like stand in one spot um, in these forests and these Great Lakes regions and just look around and see all those ingredients right around you, you know? And so we're just really trying to make the food taste like exactly where we are. And there's so much because the Western diet really doesn't touch so much of this plant life that's around us. And to be able to gain this knowledge of the use of all these plants and these flavors, and especially as a chef to be able to explore hundreds of different kinds of flavors that are part of our landscape, you know it's really exciting to th- come up with all sorts of recipes using that and we can pretty much do it anywhere so um it's uh, there's a, there's a lot to learn and we're just looking forward to um you know discovering a lot of recipes
2: well and and that has to be hard work and and a sort of challenging process to i mean i'm just thinking you know i wouldn't even know where to start to try to identify you know and and <laughs> seek out all these different ingredients and seeds and plants and And whatnot. I mean, what does that process look like to try to identify, you know, basically go back historically, identify these things and then actually find them?
3: Yeah, well, basically, we just kind of mapped out what is an indigenous food system and, and how do we apply it to all these different regions. So, you know, we're able to, we've done indigenous food dinners in Manhattan where there's almost nothing indigenous left there, you know, but we're mm-hmm. able to know what kind of plants would grow there, um, what kind of wild, wild, wild food would be around and is around, um, what kind of seeds are still alive from some of the tribes nearby there and what we can get from them and the seafood and the animals. And we're able to put together all sorts of uh, food and dinners and recipes. Um, so there's just a ton of stuff to explore. And, you know, we put out our cookbook, um, it came out in 2017, um, and we won the James Beard Award for Best American Cookbook that in 2018, that following year. But it has over 100 recipes using only indigenous ingredients in the style that we do it. And it happens to be extremely flavorful and fun and, you know, super healthy for all of us.
2: That's awesome. And that's a that's a great place for us to to wrap up. What is the name of that cookbook so we can... Check it out as well.
3: Yeah, it's called the Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, um, and you can find it online or ask Sioux, a local <laughs> yep, Sioux S I O U
2: X people. Yep,
3: S I O U X.
2: This is great, um, Sean. Thank you for for joining us, and I, for one, I'm going to come out and and visit um, and and learn more about these indigenous foodways because boy, there's there's a lot to learn and a lot to enjoy, and and it really is the original threads in the tapestry that make up uh, our Midwestern foodways. So thank you for sharing your experience and thank you for your commitment to the indigenous communities across North America.
3: Of course, thank you so much for having me.
2: We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors.
1: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
2: Welcome back to the show. Well, as you realize, this episode is all about indigenous influences on Midwestern foodways. So before we bring on our next guest... A little programming note. You may notice that the audio quality isn't as good as the last interview, and that's because our next guest was coming from a very remote Native American reservation with very unreliable internet connectivity. So we had to do our interview via phone rather than on the internet. So please be patient with the audio quality in our next interview. I
4: promise it'll be worth a listen. Well, our next guest is another steward of indigenous foodways in the Midwest region. Maggie Rosu is the executive director of the White Earth Land Recovery Project and leads Native Harvest, which is owned and operated by the White Earth Land Recovery Project. The mission of this organization is to facilitate recovery of the original land base of the White Earth Indian Reservation while preserving and restoring traditional practices of sound land stewardship, language fluency, community development, and strengthening spiritual and cultural heritage. Native Harvest specializes in producing and selling food and artisan goods made by members of the indigenous community there. Maggie speaks to us today from Callaway, Minnesota, a town of about 300 people on the White Earth Reservation. Maggie, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule.
5: Well, thank you, Capri, for having me. So I'm really looking forward to this.
4: Absolutely. We're so excited to have you on and to share the story of your community. So uh, why don't you introduce solicitors to your community? Tell us a little bit about where you are and uh, the people of uh, the White Earth uh, uh, Indian Reservation.
5: Um, So we're located in like uh, northwestern Minnesota, on the south side of northwestern Minnesota. We are a uh, we belong. Our reservation is White Earth, and we belong to the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe. Uh, we are an indigenous indigenous people. If people didn't know that, uh, and we have different levels, I want to say of colonization within our communities. We have mm-hmm. some very traditional people and people that aren't traditional. So we serve. We serve uh, about. There's about 4,500 enrolled members that live on the reservation. Our, our reservation actually has about 18,000 members with 4,500 of them living here. Uh, and that is the population we focus on.
4: And how do you serve that community?
5: So some of the things that we do as Native Harvest is we buy all our products, all our, we make a lot of our products, but we also buy the things that go into them from our community members. So if I want to talk about, so some of the things we make are um, jams, jellies, syrups. We do a cereal mix. We do soup mixes. So um, and these are from natural products. So we buy wild berries from our community. Mm-hmm. We so the choke cherries, the wild plums, the wild, um, let's see, sumac. So sumac berries we make a sumac jelly with. I've um, never heard of that. What is that? Well, so sumac is a is a is like a bush or a tree that grows wild here. There's two types of sumac. There's a white sumac and a red sumac. And we use the red sumac because the white sumac is poisonous. Everyone assumes oh, well, that, that would be good to avoid. <laughs> yes. So we make a sumac jelly. We also do sumac tea when we're feeding people. Um, it's a... Kind of the jelly is absolutely delicious. It's uh, of course sweetened with sugar, but it's absolutely delicious. The tea, sweeten as you want, and it's very good too. Um, So we buy all of the things for wild rice. We buy right off the lake and then finish it with our own um, finishing mill rice mill. So, so
4: these are ingredients. This is this is produce. These are foods um whether it's grains or fruit that are harvested right there um that are sort of native to the to the region and and familiar to the indigenous community and so you harvest them and you um you also purchase them to make into different products correct yes
5: yes absolutely we you know of course value-added products for our shelves um and we the other thing, you know is and. In the native harvest, not really, but well, it goes out and teaches people too about what we can harvest and well, what we uh, what we make. So, like we do maple syrup, and um, native harvest did produce their own for a long time. The last couple of years, we've been purchasing our maple syrup from local producers. So we have several families around here that make their own maple syrup, and anything that they make extra that they um, Want to sell? We will purchase maple syrup from people. Um, we purchase our wild rice right off the lake, right off the lake as the people come in. We also do purchase finished wild rice from people, but it's um, we like to finish it because we know that it's been wood parched. So why, wood, is
4: that signi- why is that significant? Tell us why that is significant.
5: Because wood parching is a traditional activity of what we did in uh, in the past.
4: Mm-hmm. And what, and what it also, does that process entail?
5: So um, I want to say the first thing that happens is, you know, this big fire happens and we put it into what is called our parcher. Um, it's a rice mill, so the first part is the pouch, parcher. And it uh, and you got to keep constantly moving that rice because uh, you don't want it to burn. And what that does is dry off the hull mm-hmm. and dries the rice a little bit. Um, the grain is generally... You know, it's fairly dry. The hole is the the part that needs to come off. And so, and then it goes through, it comes off, and then it goes through a thrasher. So we used to do, um, thrashing used to be done by people by walking and dancing on the rice after it was parched. Well, now we use, you know, a thrasher that just rotates that rice and it blows Mm -hmm. it, blows away the, the casing, the hull of it, the, you know, the parts we don't need, it blows away. And then, then there's your rice. You have your rice after it's been, after it's been thrashed. And then generally our, our rice um, comes out at about a, between a 30 and 40 percent rate, finishing rate. So if we're buying 10,000 pounds, we're going to come out with between 30 and 40 finished pounds. But that also depends on the year and how the rice crop is. Mm-hmm. We've gotten up to I want to say forty-five percent, which is very good. Um, mm-hmm. And rice is really significant to us because um, it's part of our migration story. So we, of course, come from the East Coast, as in, and as colonization occurred, we of course moved west. And one of our, one of our prophecies that came to us or one of the the things that came to an elder dream was that we needed to be safe to go as far as where the food grew on the water. And that's where we came to wild rice in this area. And wild rice is in, the only place you can get wild rice is the United States. That's truly wild rice. It's not not rice that's um, cultivated or grown in um, or grown in, you know, like man-made conditions. Right. So, right. and they call that patty rice. But um, I want to say Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and up into Canada.
4: Well, that definitely shows uh, that the the wild rice story is very much part of not only the indigenous story, but the uh, current day Midwestern food base story. Uh, as well, which, uh, you know, is one of the reasons why I, I wanted to engage you in this conversation in this episode. And, and interestingly enough, you talk about, you know, wild rice being part of, uh, the migration story. We also talked earlier to Sean Sherman, aka the sous chef, about his work, tr- basically cataloging and tracking, uh, the, the path of seeds all across North America. Um, in order to basically almost reverse engineer and, and figure out the origins and history of where some of the indigenous food waste came from. So this is, I've learned a lot um, just in these, this short period of time from both of you.
5: And Sean Sherman, sous chef, is amazing, and he's an amazing chef. Um, one of the things he did to help Native Harvest was to feature us in the New York Times article that he did, and online he put our link, which was really, really neat because we've seen that the sous chef has a lot of um, followers.
4: Sure. Yeah.
5: Well,
4: um, well, and one thing that you guys, I mean, one thing that you both have in common, um, and I'm sure that there are other, you know, indigenous uh, organizations um, and and nonprofits and others that, that share this commitment, is it, it seems to me a combination of, um, supporting other indigenous individuals in, um, you know, making sure that they have an opportunity to get their goods to market. So supporting other indigenous farmers and other indigenous producers. And at the same time, we uh, educating the public at large outside of the indig- indigenous community of native food ways, um, your, uh, the cultural significance is that the, uh, the practices that you guys um, uh, use in order to produce food um, and um, pass that tradition on both internally and externally. And I think that that is just um, incredibly important because, um, you know, I, for one being, a, you know, an outsider, so to speak, think that we need so much more attention on indigenous food ways, not just in the Midwest, but, um, you know, all across the hemisphere, because it's it's totally overlooked. Um, so I and I, I,
5: said, I agree with that. You know, and there's there's so many things that we do. You know, uh, Indigenous people have a, for us as Ojibwe, we have traditionally been hunters and gatherers. Mm-hmm. But as you know, things happened. We learned to grow those that were traded with other Native American communities or Indigenous communities. And one of the things I just want to bring up is, you know, like, we grow corn. We right. grow um, corn that is heritage corn to Native, native communities. And so uh, we, we make hominy, and right now we're out of it because it sells so fast each year. Right. But, um, and we do it in a traditional way. Yeah, make- tell us about that.
4: For sure, I definitely want you to tell the listeners about how it's processed and how you pass along those traditional methodologies.
5: So, you know, in the past, it was done over a wood fire. <laughs> we don't use a wood fire. We use, of course, our um, our gas stove. And, uh, and we also have a heated pot that we use at times. But you put that corn into, you know, into that hot, you put right up in that hot water. And what we do is uh, traditionally um, we used uh, ashes, so... Um, ashes from a fire, usually a hardwood fire, such as mm-hmm. as oak, and uh, we take that those ashes and we cook them in with that corn. And oh wow! What that, yeah, and what happens with the corn? Those ashes have a um, they have a component in it, and I wish I could remember what it is, but I can't. That um, removes the you know how the corn it always has a hull, and when you pop it, it has that hard hull. So it completely removes that from the corn. Um, then we, of course, take it out of that pot, drain it, and then we dry it. So hominy uh, has been dehydrated. It's a dehydrated corn that has no hull. Um, and also some people told me, well, you can kind of taste that hash. Well, I haven't really noticed that because I've grown up with it. Um, but it's, it's a really neat, you know, process to see it's a really um it's a very much of an indigenous food um not just for us but also for many many tribes across the nation
4: mhm well and and usually when uh people think of the midwest they think of corn uh, you know, that, that is the one crop oftentimes that, you know, no matter where you're from, you think of, oh, the middle of the country. What do you guys do? Oh, you grow corn. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, but we have to remember the, the history and the roots of, of corn and, uh, is, is really, um, has its roots in, uh, with indigenous communities such as yours. So this is, uh, I mean, again, very interesting to hear. And when you say, oh, People say, "Well, you can taste the ash," um, but if you grew up with it, I, you know, do you share these? Um, you know, are, are people outside of the community and the reservation able to pro- to purchase some of these goods that you produce at Native Harvest? Ab-
5: absolutely, you know, we do have a we do have a store, and it's um, located at NativeHarvest.com. Um, And these things, everything that I talked about being produced, can be purchased there. I do believe our hominy is marked as out of stock at this time. We also sell dry corn there, Um, and dry corn can be used in many, many different things. Sure. Other, other, you know, it can be processed into into cornmeal. So, uh, Maggie, I know that you've had to change
4: some of your practices and programs um, due to the coronavirus pandemic um and i believe that previously you did something called the Saturday meal program uh bringing people together um in the community and uh providing meals uh, but now you've had to adapt can you tell us a little bit about how things have evolved uh in your in your programming surrounding food in uh these very different and challenging times
5: and, and it has been very challenging. So um, one of the things, you know, you mentioned our Saturday meal program. It was really focused on feeding our families and the communities across the White Earth um, Reservation and bringing people together with an education piece as well as, you know, the company and the socialization. Well, since the coronavirus pandemic has happened, we have changed our, our protocol and we are now delivering meal kits to families. So uh, when I when I think about that, we've got, we deliver 40 meal kits because, of course, we're on a budget. Sure. Um, but one of the things uh, we have had to do is we now find out who needs them. You know, before people would just come and we would get together and now we need to find out where people are, where they're located. I got to say, one of the things that's done is connected my staff more to more to community than before, which is a good thing. Absolutely. Um, uh, but it's also been a more um, expensive route to go, because now um, more people are receiving food, which I'm really happy, than those that can show up on a Saturday to eat and eat and, um, learn. Um, one of the things we've done instead of doing, you know, gathering together and doing this educational piece, like we brought a nutritionist in one time, we brought, brought storytellers in a few times. But one of the things we've done that's different is we've put information out into our meal kits. So this meal kit that's going out is gonna have the nutrition, this, that we're doing one this weekend, It's gonna have the nutritional information on wild rice. Um, it's also gonna have the migration story included in it. So that's just part of the education that we're putting out there to the families through this through this project. Um which we would have probably had somebody talking about nutrition and and um also talking about the migration story or sharing some of that um in our in our regular Saturday food program or meal program. But now it's going into meal kits and families if they want to learn they can. If they don't, you know, there's nothing we can do to change that. So um but it's been a uh, it's been a challenge, um, especially because one of the things we're really trying to do is going to the decolonization of our food system. And so it's been a real challenge trying to get um, traditional, especially meat. So hmm. we were looking at buffalo, and we did do some buffalo, but it's um, $11 plus a pound. Wow. So so it's been a, a challenge to purchase the food at a reasonable price.
4: Sure. Well, this and this definitely links back to uh, an earlier conversation. Again, I had in this episode with uh, Sean Sherman about food sovereignty um, and trying to access those um, traditional food ingredients. But when you have a price point like that, it becomes cost prohibitive in a way that uh, you know further uh, erodes uh, your desire for that for that uh, food sovereignty. Making I think your the work that you do that much more important um, sounds to me like though, regardless of of the challenges that you face uh, as a community on a daily basis uh, you know historically but now with this additional burden of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, the work that you're doing there on the on the reservation and with native harvest to me sounds like you have risen to the occasion uh, you're providing a tool to not only feed people but feed their soul through um, uh, bringing them together, giving them education and resources that they can use, and supporting your neighbors. I can't think of anything better.
5: And through all of this, we're going you know, to make it through, and we're going to continue to serve our community. Uh, one of the things I just want to say in these meal kits, as we're delivering them to our elder population, we're also being certain to bring out face masks for them. Because that's one thing I've heard is people don't have a lot of face masks in our in our Indigenous community, but we especially want to make sure we protect our elders.
4: Of course, of course, that's uh, we all want to make sure that our elders are are safe and stay healthy. They're an incredible, incredibly important part of our community, and I know our, our cherished very in a very special way in Indigenous communities and, and hold a very revered. Uh, position in indigenous communities. Um, thank you for your commitment to helping them, to helping your neighbors and, and the way that you do. Uh, Maggie, thank you for joining the program today. Keep up the great work and stay safe.
5: Thank you, Capri. And I do want to point out, I said hull with the wild rice, and it's not hull, it's shaft, the shafts of the wild rice.
4: I, I appreciate I appreciate you being technical there, Maggie. That's why that's why you do what you do and you know this stuff and we're learning from you. Thanks
5: for that. I just want to clarify
4: that. that. Thank <laughs> you. Absolutely, Maggie. Thank you. Eat your heartland
2: out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.